Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 37 to 49. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out out that is in your eye, When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. It's good to see so many of you uh, this morning here. As we continue in a series this morning uh, through the Gospel of Luke, we've been doing this for quite a while now, and we have been for three weeks now in the the meat of this, what is called the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke chapter 6. It's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which you might be more familiar with in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and seven, and what Jesus has been describing for us is this otherworldly community of people who do things that nobody else does. That's the way I would summarize it. This is Jesus' vision for the kingdom of heaven, for a group of people who, because their hearts have been so changed by his love, that they would begin to do things that nobody else does. And this morning we come to this statement, which our culture loves, and so we have a lot of work to do this morning, and it's just this, this in verse 37, judge not. Now, immediately we know what this is, right? If you, are, if you happen to be at a Circle K at about 7.30 to 7.45 in the morning and you take far too long at the counter getting your, your, um, the churros that are underneath the hot plate there and also buying a lottery ticket while you're getting your cigarettes and somebody in the line behind you, you can hear them go, oh, that's me judging you, just in case you were wondering. Okay. That's the trifecta. Of course, nobody, nobody messed with me that I have to go there every morning to get Diet Coke because I'm completely obsessed and, and addicted. But that, I, I use that. That's what, we, that's what this idea of judging is. And Jesus says uh, that it really shouldn't be a part of our lives. 
Uh, now, again, we have a lot of work to do because we have to clarify this so that we all understand exactly what he's teaching here. But, but the, if you see that the title of the sermon, I try to be a little cheeky. I, I entitled the sermon, Judge Not As You Judge. Judge Not As You Judge. So what do I mean by that, and how do we do that? So what is, the, what is the judging that Jesus doesn't call us to here, and what is the judging that he does call us to here? And really, we're going to try to talk about this in, in three uh, different, I'm going to make three different statements that are hopefully going to summarize exactly what Jesus is calling us to here. And they're just this, and they're the three points in the outline that I've given you. The first thing Jesus wants to teach us is he's going to say to us, listen, don't look out before you first look in. Don't look out before you first look in. But secondly, he's going to say, but don't look in without also looking up. And then lastly, look up and you'll never look down again. See, that's, that's really the, the rhythm of what we're going to do this morning. Don't look out before you first look in, but don't look in without looking up. And if you look up, then you'll never look down on anybody else ever again. And then you can get busy with the work that Jesus calls us two in this passage. That really is the teaching. And so let's walk through uh, the passage along those three headings together, if you would, with me this morning. First, the first part of the teaching is just this, that, that Jesus commands us, don't look out before you first look in. Look at verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. For why do you see, verse 41, the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Now, Let's talk about what Jesus does not mean for just a second. At the end of the first section of this sermon, he says, verse 42, Then you will see clearly to, to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, so the problem is not that we judge. Jesus is calling us, in fact, to, to do that work there. He wants us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. So the problem is not that we judge. The problem is that we judge so poorly because of self-righteousness. That really is the problem. We're blind to our own sins. And if we don't see ourselves as we really are, then we can't see others as they really are. But don't for a minute buy into the idea that what Jesus is condemning here is any kind of moral evaluation. It's what the culture would like for us to believe, but it's simply not true. He says, take the speck out of your brother's eye. Your brother needs you to do that. That's what he's teaching. But before you can do it, you've got work to do on yourself. So the teaching is not, don't look out, don't make moral judgments. Anytime you do that, it's wrong. That's not it at all. Rather, it's don't look out before you first take a look in. Tolerance is a huge cultural buzzword at the moment. And when Jesus says judge not, he is not pointing us to what our culture means when it talks about tolerance. The United Nations actually wrote a document in 1995 called the Declarations of Principles on Tolerance, which states, and I quote, Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and any absolutism. See, tolerance used to mean that you and I could disagree about things, even important things, and it was okay. We could still be friends. You could, you could believe what you believed, and I believe what I believed, and we tried to compel one another with our beliefs, but at the end of the day, we could walk away and be friends. But what D.A. Carson calls the new tolerance says, tolerance means you have to throw out all truth claims, that you can't disagree. If you disagree, then you're intolerant. If you say to somebody, you're wrong, then that automatically makes you a bully. And that's the culture's unpardonable sin. To look at somebody and say, I disagree, or I think you're wrong. And what's so remarkable about 
a book that D.A. Carson wrote, which he called The Intolerance of Tolerance, which I would recommend to you, is the way he proves his argument that the tolerance movement in Western culture is far more intolerant and destructive than the people they point their fingers at. To say there are no absolute truth claims is itself an absolute truth claim. To say no absolutism is permitted except for the absolute prohibition of absolutism is horribly intolerant. I mean, tolerance, except there must be absolutely no tolerance for those who disagree with my definition of tolerance, is on its face self-contradictory. And so... Christians are forced to reject this altogether. Jesus says, judge not. But then he goes on to describe how we are to work to take the speck out of our brother's eyes. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians, which we read just a minute ago, warns about pronouncing judgment upon other people in chapter 4, verse 5. But in the same stream of thought, in chapter 6, he says that we have been given a ministry of rendering judgment. That at the end of time, we will judge the angels. And so we should begin, even in our lives now, to 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 render this kind of judgment in trivial things, what he calls trivial matters. And so while the Bible's teaching on judgment is nuanced, we are forced to reject the culture's interpretation of Jesus' words. It is not loving or wise to only affirm people and never correct them. They'll become monsters if you do that. It is not loving or wise, parents, for you to do that with your kids. If you want to destroy your children, affirm them and never correct them. But it's not loving or wise to allow truth to be called error and error to be called truth. It's not loving or wise to tolerate sin. To tolerate sin is sin. And we are not here by accident. We can't make up the rules as much as we'd like to, uh, you know, as we go along. We've been created by a creator, and therefore we are not self-defined. Truth is not relative. Happiness is not a byproduct of of personal freedom and self-expression. Jesus said in John's gospel, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If that's right, then all other versions of the truth lead to slavery and death. And to allow people to languish in them is not love. So I know what you're thinking. Especially if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity. You're saying to yourself, see, this is the problem. You Christians, you think you have the truth. You're right and everybody else is wrong. And that's why you're so self-righteous and mean. Can I respond to that? And here's how I would respond to that. Let me first say that to believe that you're right and somebody else is wrong itself does not automatically make you self-righteous. Self-righteousness is when you take the truth and you use it to belittle other people so you can feel better about yourself. And so here's the irony that we have to repent of. I mean, this is where we, if not for ourselves, for our, our brother, you know, lots of our brothers and sisters, but probably for ourselves too, there's a certain irony that a Christian who is self-righteously pronouncing judgment on everybody else is using Christian truth in an unchristian way. And that's the real problem. I mean, that's what Jesus really takes issue with here. When he says, judge not, and you will not be condemned, verse 37, or, and you will not be judged, condemn not, and you will not be condemned, he doesn't mean that we should refrain from making any moral evaluation or truth claim but rather that we shouldn't be trying to condemn other people and put them down in order to raise ourselves up. And so the problem that we have to solve this morning together is, how do we not judge even as we judge? And the answer is to do it, but with no self-righteousness, not from a position of superiority looking down on everybody else. And so it's important to read verse 37 in light of what comes before it and what comes after it. 
So look there at verse 37 again. Judge not, you will not be judged. But what comes right before this verse in verse 36? It's not printed for you, but if you have a Bible, you'll see it there. In the, very, in the verse just before this, Jesus says, Be merciful as your Father is merciful, and judge not, and you will not be judged, and condemn not, and you will not be condemned. And then he goes on to say, Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So the warning about not judging is bracketed by the command to be merciful in verse 37 and forgiving in verses in later, excuse me, merciful in verse 35 and 36, forgiving later in verses 7. So the teaching is judge but with mercy and gentleness and forgiveness. So the problem with our judging according to Jesus is that we look out. But we do it without first looking in. We see the speck of dust in our brother's eye and we try to deal with it without first dealing with the log that is in our own. And look at verse 42. Jesus says, this is hypocrisy, you hypocrite, he says. First take out the log of your own before you start to deal with other people. But what does that mean? Why is it, this is interesting, why does Jesus call this hypocrisy? And the Greek word here is taken right out of the Greek and into the English. The English word hypocrisy is the same as the Greek word hypocrisy or hypocrite. Almost letter for letter, it has a very specific meaning. It refers to an actor. At this time... Actors used masks, and so if you were playing a certain part, uh, you, were, you were meant to be playing a character that was joyful, then you would wear the joyful mask. Or if you were playing a character that had befallen you know, to some great tragedy and you were supposed to be sad and grieving, you would wear a grieving mask. And you've probably seen kind of the insignia on some of the old um, show bills and, and whatnot of the, of the different masks with the different expressions on their face. And the point is that the mask that you would wear could hide what you were really like underneath. And all good acting is that way. That the actors who receive Academy Award nominations are those who are able to so transform themselves into the role that they become something they're not and you forget who they really are in real life. They become the person they're playing. And that really is the point of Jesus' metaphor is that an actor uh, could feel sad but then put on the mask and play a joyful role and, and you wouldn't see what was going on on belief. And let's be honest, Keanu Reeves will never win an Oscar because he's the same character in every movie he's in. Okay, but The Matrix is still awesome, okay? Jesus says, this is why we focus all of our attention on other people's sins and pay no attention to our own. It's hypocrisy. It is the, listen to this, it is the inclination of the human heart to want to divert attention from what it's really like. The human heart desperately wants to get into image management. It wants to get into spin. It wants to get into airbrushing because it doesn't want anybody to see what it's really like. And one way of doing this, according to Jesus, what's, what it's showing us in this passage, one way of doing this is to live with a judgmental spirit, to constantly be looking out, And when you're looking out to try to get everybody else to look out at what you're looking at so that nobody's looking at you. So that you don't have to look at you. To focus on other people's sins and never on our own. See, the way in which we divert attention from who we really are is by finding fault with other people and looking around and seeing all the bad things uh, that they do and providing a running commentary on what everybody else how they're screwed up, and this is hypocrisy. We judge in order to hide what we're really like by focusing on what's wrong with everybody else. And this is what Jesus is warning us about. He says, don't look out at everybody else until you first look in. You hypocrite, first. You see verse 42? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly 
to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Again, Jesus doesn't prohibit moral evaluation. He says, before you comment on another person's life, you have work to do on your own. It matters what you do first. Do you first deal with the speck that is in your own eye and then go on? Or do you ignore the log? You know, do you ignore the log that's sticking out of your own? Do you first take the log out of your own eye and then move on to try to help the other person? It matters what you do first, where your heart goes first. But why is it so hard? Why is it so scary to look in? And I think the answer from the Bible is just that you can't stand to see what's in your heart. None of us can. We can't stand the thought of what we'd see if we really started to look in, but we know it's huge. It's not just a speck. It's a log. It's a weight-bearing beam is what that word refers to. See, when you're judging, the problem is you're treating other people's sins as if they are logs and your own is as if it's just a little speck. But Jesus flips it around and he says, the truth, the truth is that the thing I see in other people that bothers me so much is just a little speck of sawdust compared to the logs in my own life. What I can see of their sin is just a splinter compared to the load-bearing beam I'm dealing with in me. And that's the reality. And that's where we start. To say it another way, don't do confrontation without confession. Jesus says confrontation without confession is hypocrisy. So two disciplines, confession and confrontation. But in our lives, which comes first? Which is more pronounced? Confess... Then confront, because confrontation without confession isn't Christian. It's motivated by self-righteousness, by wanting to destroy the other person's rightness in order to establish my own. Do you see? So the first part of the teaching that Jesus gives us in these verses is that the unique way that all of those who follow him live is that we understand that we all live with the feeling that there's something wrong with us, that we can't bear to look ourselves in the mirror, that we're trying to hide uh, these flaws from ourselves and from other peoples, and one of the best strategies for hiding our own problems is to constantly be pointing out what's wrong with what's wrong with everybody else. And to be a follower of Jesus means you refuse to do that. You refuse to look out without first looking in. I love the scripture in First Peter: "Love covers a multitude of sins." That's such a radical thing. Can we do that? Let's do that. But one last thing. Look at these verses one more time with me. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will, not be, forgi- and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Verse 38, for with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So one last piece of just pastoral advice before we move on to our next point. It's just a warning. And the warning, I think, that's behind what we've said already is that we are to be people who live from the outside in and not, not, excuse me, that we are to be people who live from the inside out and not from the outside in. Let me explain what I mean. Outside in means that you live in response to your circumstances, that your inward frame is dependent upon what's happening around you. And for this person, the problem is always out there, right? I, I was, I had so much fun. I drove with my, I drove with my uh, son and a bunch of his friends to this thing over in, um, in Daytona Beach last night, and, and one of their friends got in the car, and he started to describe, the, he's 17, so he's been driving for a year, and, he had, and he's been in three accidents in the first year, but he very clearly understands that in all three cases, it was the other person's fault that he got into the accident. And I just tried to tell him, you know, at some point, there's a common denominator that you have to deal with in this whole thing, okay? But he just very, it, you know, this person did this, and it was their fault, so for this person, 
for this person, the problem is always on the outside. It's always out there. It's my spouse. It's my parents. It's my job. It's my group of friends. Whatever it might be. It's the other bad drivers on the road. Okay? Jesus' teaching here is really profound. He says, instead of living in response to your circumstances, that the work of the gospel in your heart has the power to begin to shape and change your circumstances. That's what it means to live from the inside out, that your inward frame, that the work of the gospel in you has the power to begin to transform what's happening around you. So what keeps us from experiencing this is, is too much looking out and not enough looking in, thinking that the source of the problem, whatever the problem is I'm dealing with, is out there and not in here. And so let me give you a few examples. If you would say, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot because I'm burdened for people who come and talk to me, and these are the kinds that they say, you know, I don't, we're struggling because I don't really have any close friends. It's painful, and I hear it all the time. And these verses would train us to think about that problem in a very specific way. Instead of looking out at the people in my life and beginning to blame them, first I should look in and ask a really hard question. I don't have any friends. Am I a good friend? See, the solution to not having friends is not to find a new social group and try again. The solution is to become a good friend. Become a good friend and you'll always have friends. That's what, that's what this verse means. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, Jesus says. Verse 38. Do you wish your spouse would move towards you in intimacy more often? Stop complaining about it and go first. Right? That sounds harsh. I'm sorry if that was harsh. Because I realized, but... Do you have a friendship that's strained? Then forgive. Stop waiting for the other person. Do you want friends? Be a friend. Be the catalyst for the change that you desire to see in your life. Don't accept your circumstances and allow them to dictate your inward frame of heart and mind. Ask God to go to work on you. Because if I could give one piece of advice in marriage, it would be that. Stop focusing on your spouse and all of the things that you wish that, that you could change about them. Start focusing on the things that need to change in you. Because if God goes to work on you, then the gospel working in you is the power to transform your circumstances. That's the teaching. Your personal gospel vitality is typically the solution to the problem in your circumstances. Can I say that again? Your personal gospel vitality is typically, not always, typically the solution to whatever problem you're facing in your circumstances. A new set of circumstances is hardly ever the solution to the problem in your circumstances. Change starts in the heart and moves out. It happens inside, out, not outside in. That's part of what Jesus is teaching us here. So the first thing is don't look up. Excuse me, don't look out without first looking in. And the second thing, it's going to go a lot faster from here. The second thing from these verses is this, but don't look in without immediately beginning to look up. See, beginning in verses 43 and following, Jesus is trying to move us towards self-examination. He says, you're so busy examining other people and digging your nose into their business. Why don't you turn inward and start to do that with yourself? So he goes, goes on to say, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, but each tree is known by its fruit. In other words, Jesus is saying, take a minute and think about your life. Take a careful examination and look at what you're producing. A critical spirit is bad fruit, and bad fruit means... A bad tree, and so we have to be, you know, we have to be cognizant of what Jesus is calling us to here. We also have to be really, really careful. Because you see, it would be easy for us to think that the solution to our outward-looking judgmentalism 
is an, is an, an introspection. But that just isn't the case. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in taking up the subject, wrote these words, and I found them helpful, so let me share them with you. He says, we all agree that we should examine ourselves, but we also agree that introspection and morbidity are bad. We are meant to examine ourselves periodically, but if we are always doing that, always putting our soul on the plate and dissecting it, that's introspection. And if we're always talking to people about ourselves and always talking about our problems and always talking about our troubles, and if we are forever going to them with that kind of frown on our faces and saying, I'm in great difficulty, <laughs> you know, he says it probably means that we are all the time centered upon ourselves. The solution to self-righteously obsessing about other people's sins is not to begin to despairingly obsess about your own. That's just, that just leads to despair. That's trading one form of pride for another. And Robert Murray McShane in the 19th century Scottish preacher famously said, seeing sin does not change us. We need to see Jesus. And I love this line. It's really stuck with me. He said, for every one look at sin, take ten looks at Christ. So what's the solution to judgmentally looking out? It's begin to look, beginning to look in. But if, you, but if in the look in at your own sin... You stay there. If it's not only a glance, then you're going to get yourself in trouble. Look in. Glance at your sin, but then immediately begin to look up. And this really comes out in the passage when we ask the question uh, here of these verses. What's the difference between the two trees there in verses 43 through 45? And what's the difference between the two houses in verses 46 uh, and, and following verses 49? What's the difference? Well, the good tree is the good person and the bad tree is the bad person, right? No, that's not it at all. And that's the surprise in Jesus' teaching. Uh, without having time to go into all the details of this, let me just kind of summarize what Jesus is trying to teach us here. And it's just that the good tree in the house built on the rock is the gospel person, and the bad tree in the house built on the sand is the religious person. They look similar. That's the point. Side by side, the trees look alike, but one is producing bad fruit and the other is producing good fruit. The houses look just alike, but one is built on foundation on a foundation of sand, and the other is built on the rock. So from all outward appearances, they are the same. But inwardly, on a subterranean level, in the roots, in the foundation, one is crumbling and the other is healthy and strong. See, Jesus is drawing a contrast between the religious leaders and his disciples, those who, verse 47, hear his words and do them. And the difference is that disciples look up. They know that the solution to our sin and our brokenness has to come from outside of us, from above, from God. And so the response of the religious person to looking in is to keep looking in. (laughs) A religious person begins to look in and then they just keep looking in to try harder, to figure out a different strategy, and, and there's no power in that. The flood of accusation or criticism will come or suffering will come and it will sweep them away. So the response of a disciple to their looking in is to always look up, as the Hebrew writers put it, looking to Jesus. We read this last week, the founder and perfecter of our faith, considering him that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How do you keep from being swept away? Look to Jesus. See, the difference between the good tree and the bad tree, the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock, is this. When you begin to look in, When you begin to get a sense, a true sense of your sin and brokenness, is your response, one of two things, is your response to keep looking in, to try to find some resource from within yourself to meet this need, or when you look in, 
you begin to get a true sense of just how broken you are, is your response to immediately begin to look up. See, just looking in without also looking up will make you morbidly self-obsessed. Thinking the solution to sin and brokenness comes from you is the evil treasure, verse 45, that produces evil. But looking in that leads to looking up will make you self-forgetful and overflowingly loving and generous to others. That's the gospel. And the gospel, the gospel is the good treasure that produces good fruit, verse 45. So it's one or the other. One or the other is abundantly flowing out of your heart. Which is it? That's what this text would, would ask you. Which is it? And so to summarize what we've said. First, don't look out without looking in. But don't look in without looking up. Look in, but only with a glance. And, and then the last thing, and then we're going to come to the table. And the last thing is, is if you begin to look up, then you'll never look down on anybody ever again. See, we have to finish with this because we might be tempted to think, as I've said just before, that the point of Jesus' teaching is something like this. Stop worrying about what other people are doing. Just worry about yourself. But that's not the point. Jesus' desire is not that we would become so introspective that we become self-obsessed, but that we would become people who are self-forgetful. That we would not think less of ourselves, but as I, I don't remember who put it this way, but that we would think of ourselves less. So ultimately, the teaching is stop taking other people's sins so seriously. But listen, stop taking your sins so seriously too. I thought that would get a chuckle. Because we're not good at that. If you need to know that, can I just tell you that? You're not good at that. Don't take other people's sins so seriously, but don't take your own so seriously either. Start instead to glory in the gospel. Because that's the only way to do what Jesus commands in these verses. Looking out too much and looking in too much are both symptoms of the same disease, pride. And it's pride that makes us overly sensitive to other people's sins and thus self-righteous. It's also pride that is the root of unhealthy introspection and self-loathing. Pride causes you to always be looking down, looking down on other people, looking down on your own struggles. And the problem with always looking down is, of course, that if you're constantly looking down, then you never see what's above you. See, Christian faith is a matter of looking up. It's looking up to God to be and to do for you what you can't be and do on your own. Conversion, what we talk about in in the church, conversion is the time in your life when you stopped looking down and you started looking up, when you realized that in God you'd come up against something that was in every respect immeasurably superior to you. And when you look up, when you look up, what do you see? It's when I begin to realize I can't do life on my own. I don't have the resources no matter how far I dig inside of myself. I don't have the resources that I need. Oh, God, be merciful to me. And I begin to look up. And when we look up, when you, when, in that moment when you look up, what is it that you see? What is it that we learn in the gospel that is so life-transforming? And it's just what we read in John 3. I love that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but will have everlasting life. We quote that one, but we don't quote the next one, which says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that through him the world might be saved. Listen. Listen. That's the truth that transforms. God looked down, and then he came down. He didn't look down from his lofty position and pronounce judgment upon the world's sins. No. He looked down, and he loved, and because he loved, he came down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, No matter how bad you've blown it or how often in Jesus Christ, God doesn't condemn, he saves. 
Let me say it again, because I... No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've blown it or how often, or whatever it might be, in Jesus Christ, he doesn't condemn, he saves. And that's the good treasure, verse 45, that produces good. That is the foundation of rock, verse 48, that if you build your life on that, nothing will ever shake you. God looked down, and he saw your sins. But instead of condemning you, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came down, not to condemn, but to be condemned in our place that we might be saved. Now, if that is how God has loved me and treated me in my sin, then how should I treat me in my sin? And if that's how God has loved me and treated me in my sins, then how should I treat you in your sins? See, look up. And you'll never look down on anybody ever again. And then... Then, at that moment, when you stopped looking out and started looking in, but in a way that ultimately forces you to look up, then you can really get to work being a good friend, helping your brother with the speck that is in his eye. Then you can judge, but without judging. But not until then. Uh, at this table this morning, we really have the opportunity to do what we just sang uh, just a minute ago. This is the movement that we're hoping for in the next few minutes in our service is the the words of the song that we sang, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what's the next line? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Upward I look and see him there. That's what I hope happens in these moments as we gather around this table. And so let's pray as we prepare to come. Holy Father, we are grateful of what we read in John chapter 3 and the promise that it gives to us that you did not look down upon our sins and condemn us, but you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to be a Savior of sinners. Lord Jesus, that you came not to condemn, but to save, that you have compassion on us in our sins and are merciful towards us, uh, that you have not judged us according to the deserts of our sins, but instead you've extended mercy and grace to us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would shape and fashion us as a people, whose life mirrors the truth that we now celebrate at this meal together this morning, that we would have the courage and the boldness to speak prophetically into the culture, to pronounce good, good, and evil, evil, to judge, as we will one day judge the angels, but to judge without judging, without self-righteously looking down our noses, but to, in compassion and mercy, lovingly pursue people with the truth in hopes of repentance in them. That's what we desire, but we need so much help because we do this so poorly. And so we pray that even now you continue to shape our lives around the beautiful truth of your gospel, your great love for us. Holy Spirit, come and do this work in our hearts, we pray, that we might be a people who can hear these words and do them, that you might be glorified in us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so just before he sends us, he beckons us again to look up. That's the the words of this benediction are yet again an opportunity to look up. And if we will look up, the promise of this table and of the gospel is that what we will see is a father smiling down upon us. And when that truth begins to come home to your hearts, that, that, that in Jesus Christ God has dealt with your sins, then we can begin to look out as he sends us into the world to do the good work he's called us to do, but not before. So look up. Receive these words. May they fill your heart uh, with all that you need to go and faithfully do the work he's called you to this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.